If you have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to open up to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, we're in chapter 13, as we're continuing our verse-by-verse study through this incredible book, the book of Acts, telling us a lot about New Testament church, the new covenant, there's a lot of transition going on, and a great opportunity for us to learn a little bit this morning about the first missionary trip of both Barnabas and Saul. So the title for the sermon this morning is just that, it's a call to missions, a call to missions. I hear one little one crying out, she's called, that, who are that baby, that baby's called to missions, I like it. Uh, Acts chapter 13, 1 through 12 is where we are, a call to missions. Let's listen to what Luke writes here, he says, now when they were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they went sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, They proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Father, we're grateful this morning to be able to read through Acts chapter 13, this first part of Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. I pray, God, as we look at a call to missions this morning, as we see what you're doing in this passage, we would also consider what you've done through great missionaries over the, the Christian faith and that what you're doing today in mission, uh, uh, mission efforts around the world. And that even this morning, you would remind all of us to be a mission-sending church, and that you would raise up young men and young women, even from this body, who would want to go and proclaim the gospel to all nations. God, so teach us what you want us to learn from this text so that we might apply it to our lives and live it out today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, in September of 1853, a very meager boat sailed quietly out of the Liverpool Harbor with Hudson Taylor, a thin, wild-eyed 21-year-old missionary aboard. He was beginning his first missionary trip to China. At this time, only a few dozen missionaries served there as the Far East was growing in the Great Commission work. 
Western mission boards began to think more and more about reaching that area for Christ. And by the time Hudson Taylor died, a half a century later, China was viewed as one of the most fertile and challenging places on the mission field as thousands volunteered to evangelize Red China. Hudson Taylor was born and raised in a Christian family. His parents were fascinated with the far Near East and with Southeast Asia. They actually prayed, quote, God, that he may work for you in China. That was their specific prayer when Hudson Taylor was a baby. Years later, a teenage Hudson Taylor experienced a radical spiritual new birth as he realized that Christ not only died for him, but that Christ was calling him to give up his life so that others may hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, listen to this entry in Hudson Taylor's diary as he discusses this. He says this, on Sunday, June the 25th, 1865, unable to bear the sight of a congregation of a thousand or more Christian people rejoicing in their own security, while millions were perishing from lack of knowledge, I wandered out on the sands alone in great spiritual agony. And there the Lord conquered my unbelief and I surrendered myself to God for this service. In other words, Hudson Taylor got tired of worshiping together with thousands of Christians in his own home nation of England while he knew that there were thousands perishing outside of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he surrendered to be a missionary and he said that God put before him an unspeakable awe when he surrendered and an unspeakable joy. What did he do? He spent the next few years in frantic preparation, learning the rudiments of medicine, studying Mandarin, and immersing himself with even deeper understanding of the word of God and time in prayer. Hudson Taylor's ship sailed to Shanghai, one of the five treaty ports China had opened to foreigners following various political wars that it was having with England. Almost immediately, Taylor made a radical decision, at least for Protestant missionaries of the day. He decided to dress in Chinese clothes and to grow out a pigtail, as the Chinese men did. His fellow Protestants were either questioning this move or critical of his strategy to blend in with the indigenous people. Taylor, for the most part, was not happy with most of the missionaries that he saw there in China. He believed that they were worldly because they spent too much time with English businessmen and diplomats who needed their services as translators. Instead, Taylor wanted to take his Christian faith into the interior of China. So within months of arriving, and the native language still a challenge, Taylor, along with one other missionary, sent off to the interior, setting sail down the Hanangu River, distributing Chinese Bibles and tracts. Taylor faced enormous challenges in his work in China, but God always gave him the strength and the stamina and the stability he needed to lift Christ high in the midst of a pagan culture. Taylor eventually started his own mission agency, well-known as the China Inland Mission. And as the going got tough, some of the China Inland missionaries left to join other efforts. But in 1876, with 52 missionaries, this mission agency constituted one-fifth of the missionary force in China. 
As the mission continued to grow, Taylor felt the pressure and responsibility of stewarding this opportunity in China well. As Taylor struggled with this challenge, he wrote this in his diary, I told the Lord that all the responsibility as to issues and consequences must rest with him, that as his servant, it was mine to obey and to follow him, his to direct, to care for, and to guide me and those who might labor with me. Need I say that peace at once flowed into my burdened heart? Because there continued to be so many Chinese people to reach, Taylor continued his radical strategy. He sent more young missionaries into the interior, a move criticized by many veterans. But Taylor's boldness knew no bounds. And in 1881, he asked God for 70 missionaries by the close of 1884. He got 76. In late 1886, Taylor prayed for another 100 missionaries within one year. By November of 1887, he announced 102 candidates had been accepted for service. One mission biographer summed up things pretty well with Hudson Taylor and his missionary example. He, said, he wrote this, It is only through the surrendered life that God can work. God cannot use you in any special way if you're holding back one area of your life from him. If there is one little chamber of which you hold the key and into which God has not fully entered, he cannot greatly use you. Your intellectuality, your intellectuality might be great, your genius may be superb, your social standing may be beyond question, but God does not use people for those reasons. God uses them when he has all of them and only then. What a great introduction to our message today. We're just being reminded that God calls people to serve him with all their hearts. And that's true of us, whether you're here to stay in the United States of America for your whole life or whether or not God raises you up to go and to preach the gospel and to proclaim the truth on the mission field. I mean, have you ever wondered if God was calling you to, to, to the mission field? Have you ever been scared that if you truly surrendered everything to Christ, then God would call you to Africa or to India or to the Amazon? I remember being afraid of that when I was a kid in high school and the missionaries would come speak. I'm like, no, Lord, I don't want to go to Africa. I don't want to dress like those missionaries. I don't want my, I, I don't want to do that. I, I just remember thinking like, I might be willing, but I'm kind of scared to do it because it's a radical calling, right? It's a radical sacrifice. How do you know whether or not if God's calling you to be a missionary? This morning, I want to talk to you about the call to missions. And in our passage, we're going to see the commission of the missionaries. Secondly, the mission of the missionaries. Third, the opposition to the missionaries. And then fourth, the determination of the missionaries, all from our text here, verses 1 through 12. So let's start with number one, the commission of the missionaries. The first blank, if you're taking notes, says the teaching at Antioch, the teaching at Antioch. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, and we'll go through a few names here in a moment, but just first, I want to point out the fact that there were prophets and teachers there at Antioch. Let's just kind of 
paint the setting a little bit more for you. According to Acts chapter 11, the church of Antioch was planted by Barnabas and a few other Christians from Cyprus and Cyrene. They boldly preached the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and a great number of people came to saving faith. The scripture records that when Barnabas saw the impact of the gospel and the growth of the church, that he went to Tarsus to look for Saul And then in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, it says, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, disciples were first called Christians. In Acts chapter 12, we learned of Peter's rescue from prison by the angel. And at the end of chapter 12, we read that Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose name was Mark. And now that they're back in Antioch, along with some other prophets and teachers, they're getting ready for this first missionary send-off. Verse 1, it talks about the prophets and the teachers. This gift of prophecy in the early church had two components. Number one, it was the divine enablement of receiving and communicating direct verbal revelation from God to man. Number two, it was the non-revelatory divine enablement to preach the word faithfully and accurately. And so the prophets that are mentioned here in the New Testament, here in verse one, they were to preach the word faithfully and accurately. And the prophets edified the church by proclaiming God's word. Sometimes that was giving new divine revelation and sometimes it was preaching from that divine revelation which had already been revealed. And while the revelatory aspect of the gift has ceased, the ongoing preaching of the word still remains. The spiritual gift of teaching is also mentioned here. There were prophets and teachers and teaching is connected with that of being a shepherd. Teaching and shepherding go hand in hand, particularly in Ephesians 4.11 when it talks about pastor teachers or shepherd teachers. And that gift of teaching involves the divine enablement to teach the word by explaining, leading, feeding, protecting, and caring for the sheep. Teachers are to give others a clear understanding of biblical truth. And the distinction of the gift of teaching is providing an emphasis in clear explanation so that the listeners could hear and understand what the Bible is saying. As I mentioned, Ephesians 4.11 says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. And there in Ephesians 4.11, I believe this verse is transitioning from the apostles and prophets who had miraculous and revelatory gifts to the evangelists and the pastor teachers who have the permanent gifts of sharing the gospel, planting churches, and shepherding the flock. Through the New Testament, there is a gradual shift from that more divine revelation and miraculous gifts that were on display. There's a shift as we're working through the New Testament from it being more miraculous in nature to that which would be focused on everyday life as a Christian. In fact, I don't know if you know this or not, but after the four gospels and the book of Acts, there are no other recorded miracles in the New Testament. You have the four gospels, you have the book of Acts packed with divine revelation and miracles. Now there is some discussion about miracles that happen, 
but there's no specific incidents of a miracle recorded in the rest of the epistles. Again, you, you can look through your Bible if you want, because I know you're going to challenge me on that to be like, no, there's got to be some more miracles in there somewhere. I'm just saying there's no other recorded miracles. And Jesus here appears miraculously, of course, to John in the book of Revelation for him to write down future prophecy about what will happen in the tribulation and at the second coming and in heaven. We also have... Um, People speaking in tongues and the gift of tongues and prophecy that are mentioned in Romans 12. It's mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's being practiced. So in some regard, you could say that is miraculous, but there's not just one clear miracle that was performed. The New Testament is moving from powerful miracles to a powerful emphasis on Christian living. It moves from introducing revelation to focusing on the revelation that has been given in order that it can be lived out. It moves from new beginnings to sustaining your walk in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. It moves from the new covenant to watching your life and your doctrine closely. So what we're seeing here in the midst of the book of Acts is there is still this revelatory, that means brand new revelation given from God to man from these prophets, whereas the teachers emphasize teaching what's been revealed in a way that would be ongoing good teaching and Christian doctrine. And so at this point, we're now introduced to a team of five godly men, still here in verse one, that are leading the church of Antioch. Let's take a look at them quickly if we can. Number one, we have Barnabas. And we already know a little bit about Barnabas. We were first introduced to him in chapter 4, verse 36. We were told that he was a Levite and a native of Cyprus. He was from, uh, from that area, and he was a very generous man because we're told in Acts 4:36 again that he had a plot of land that he sold, and he laid that money at the apostles' feet. Barnabas' name means son of encouragement. And he lived up to that name, for in Acts chapter 9, verse 27, we read how Barnabas took Saul in when the other apostles were afraid that maybe Saul wasn't really converted and he was just trying to kind of get in to maybe wreak havoc like he had been doing. But Barnabas brought him in when the others were unsure. And a little bit later in Acts chapter 11, verse 22, Barnabas was the first Christian that the Jerusalem church sent to Antioch to verify the gospel work that was going on here where the Antioch church was planted. And then in Acts chapter 11, verse 25, it was Barnabas who went to Tarsus to recruit Saul to help him with the work in Antioch. And in Acts chapter 11, verse 30, the Antioch church took up an offering and they uh, wanted to help the church in Jerusalem as they were facing that widespread famine. And then in Acts 12, 25, we read how Barnabas and Saul did indeed bring the funds to Jerusalem when they had completed their work of service and now they've returned to Antioch. Now, I don't know about you, but I like Barnabas. He's the kind of guy who was your friend, right? He was the kind of guy that you wanted on your team. He was generous. He was encouraging. He worked well with people. He had good discernment. He had a heart for God and for God's church and for getting others involved in God's work. All of us should be aspiring to grow in some of those same ways to be a healthy kind of Barnabas. And then we hear about a second leader here in verse 1 that was at the church of Antioch, and his name was Simeon, who's also called Niger. We also uh, know that Simeon, or I should say all we know about Simeon is that he's also called Niger, which is the word that means black. And from this, we can deduce that Simeon was most likely from Africa, or he was simply dark-skinned, or maybe both. 
And while some identify him with the Simon of Cyrene who carried Jesus' cross in Mark chapter 15, verse 21, there's no direct evidence that proves that correlation. A third person we see here, a leader of the church of Antioch, was Lucius of Cyrene. Lucius of Cyrene. It's Lucius, not Simeon, who is associated with Cyrene, which is a city there in northern Africa. Lucius may have well been one of the men from Cyrene, mentioned back in Acts chapter 11, verse 20, when it says, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Lucius could have been one of those men from Cyrene who was a charter member of the Antioch church and who came there boldly preaching Christ, not only to the Jews, but also to the Hellenists, which were the Greek cultured, Greek-speaking Jews, and some of them were just plain old Gentiles. And so we see this guy, Lucius, was a leader. And then a fourth leader from the church of Antioch is Menaean. Menaean, he's a friend, your next blank here says he's a friend of Herod, the Tetrarch. Menaean was the most interesting of these middle three, the lesser three known. We know Barnabas and Saul really well, but I'm talking about these middle three here that we're reviewing. He's the most interesting of them because from childhood, he was a friend of the Herod family, part of that Herod dynasty. In fact, the New American Standard Bible translates this as Manan, who had been brought up with Herod. This could also be actually translated, that word brought up with Herod could be translated as he was Herod's foster brother. This indicates that Manan may have actually grown up in King Herod's house. And when King Herod the Great died, right before Jesus was born, his governance was split into four areas. And that's what the word tetrarch means. There was King Herod the Great. He died in 4 BC. At that time, his kingdom was split up into four different areas. And most likely, Manan was a lifelong friend of Herod Antipas, who reigned for 42 years. He reigned from the time King Herod the Great died in 4 BC to 39 AD. 4 BC to 39 AD. This means it was this King Herod Antipas who had slaughtered the baby boys in Bethlehem and who also approved of Christ's crucifixion later at the end of his life. And Manan was part of that household. In some ways, Manan reminds us of Moses who grew up in Pharaoh's household. You remember that powerful passage? Maybe just turn there just for a second. It's that powerful. Look at it, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, we're saying Manan kind of reminds us because here's another well-known person uh, that grew up in a similar situation. Moses, we're talking about Hebrews 11, verse 24. You remember this? By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. In other words, Moses wasn't afraid of Pharaoh. He had his faith in God, and he decided to go with God's people versus staying in the house of Pharaoh. And in many ways, you can go back now to Acts 13. I just love reading that as many times as I can about Moses in the hall of faith because it's just that riveting 
And, I, and I'm saying that Menahem reminds us of Moses because just as Moses grew up privileged in Pharaoh's house, but at some point Moses had an Old Testament conversion where he saw Yahweh and he knew he needed to leave the pagan house to go back to the house of that which he grew up in and to represent and serve the living God. Menahem also was privileged to grow up in the house of King Herod. He grew up in King Herod the Great's house. I'm saying he was friends with Antipas, but his father figure would have been King Herod the Great. And they would have had all the money in the world and all the power and prestige in the world. And as adults, King Herod Antipas went in one direction while Pharaoh, or sorry, I'm still thinking about Pharaoh, uh, King Herod Antipas went in one direction, but Manah went into another direction. These kids grew up. One continued in the line of his father, evil king, evil ruler, a murderer. And then this guy, Manah, says, I'm out. And Manah would choose to be treated, mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin from Herod's house. And Manah considered the reproach of Christ greater than all the wealth and the treasures and the influence of the political leaders of Israel. That's Manah. Pretty incredible character if what we're seeing here rings true, which to the best we can tell, that's what it's saying. He grew up as a close family friend and in the house of Herod, Herod, and now he's serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the fifth leader of the Antioch church needs no introduction. It's Saul, who is also called Paul. Saul, there at the end of verse 1 is where we see his name. He was saved, as you know, on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. After Saul was accepted into the Jerusalem church and was preaching the gospel boldly there, the brothers sent him to Tarsus for his own safety. And in Acts chapter 11, it's again when we talked about Barnabas went to Tarsus to fetch Saul and to bring him back to Antioch, and they had been busy for a year preaching and teaching and shepherding there at this church of Antioch. And the church, what we're learning here from these five different men who are leaders, all in verse 1, we're just being reminded here that the church is to be led by a plurality of leaders. The church is not just one man's show. Church leadership is not to be structured around the senior pastor as the CEO, as much as I wish it was at times, <laughs> out of my own selfish, sinful ambition, right? But a church is led by a team of godly men. We see that in Jerusalem. You have the Jerusalem Council, and now we're seeing that in Antioch as we have five men who are qualified to be leading this church. There is a, also we see these five men, there is a diversified group of elders leading this metropolitan church of Antioch. I mean, you have Jewish and Gentile leaders. You have Africans, Mediterraneans, and Middle Easterners. You have murderers, Saul, and you have those who grew up in a Levitical home. That was Barnabas. You have highly educated, Saul, and presumably those who had no formal education. We don't know that those from Northern Africa, what kind of education they had. Antioch's leadership team is a beautiful picture of diversity in culture, but doctrinal conviction in gospel truths. Antioch is a healthy church. Now we see what's going to happen to them. They're going to send out two of their very best. Let's look now at verse 2, the calling, your next blank, the calling to missions. While they were worshiping the Lord, and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Please note, 
the pronoun they refers most distinctly here in verse 2 to the prophets and the teachers, specifically to these five men that we just mentioned. They were involved in worshiping the Lord and fasting. They were not just preaching the spiritual disciplines, they were practicing the spiritual disciplines. They weren't just talking about it, they were doing it. The word worshiping here in verse 2 could also be translated as ministering. The word has to do with priestly service, or in this case, pastoral service. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it describes the priest who ministered at the tabernacle. And these five patterned themselves after the apostles of Acts 6-4, who were committed to the ministry of the word and prayer. These five men were offering spiritual sacrifices to the Lord in the spirit of Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 and 16, which says, through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name and do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. That seems to be the spirit of these five men working together, sacrificing together, worshiping, ministering, offering sacrifices of praise. And at this point, as these men are ministering and as they are worshiping and as they are fasting and as they are praying, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I had called them. Again, please note in verse two, it's as they were already being faithful. They were already worshiping and ministering and fasting and praying and teaching. And it's as they were doing the work called them to do there, the Holy Spirit says, you know what? I wanna take these two, Saul and Barnabas, I want you to set them apart because I have another work for them. The Holy Spirit divinely chose Barnabas and Saul to send them out. And this is a precedent in scripture for sending out of your very best. You know, the church of Antioch could have been like, well, can't you take like Simeon? Can't you take uh, this other guy? We don't know them as well, but you got to take Saul and Barnabas? Just a reminder that scripture, oftentimes when we read about these missionary trips, they're sending out the very best. That's, that's an encouraging reminder to us that they didn't just find someone in the church who wasn't doing much and sent them out on a mission trip, they sent away possibly the two most gifted, most faithful, most proven workers of the gospel. And at that time, the Holy Spirit divinely revealed himself to the group as they were prophets, and Saul was an apostle. The Holy Spirit says, there is a work to which I had called them. The responsibility of preaching and teaching the word of God, in verse two, is a great work. It says, I've set them aside for a work. Going into the ministry is not to be seen as a second-rate job. It's not to be seen as, well, I've tried everything else and I can't make it in the real world, so I guess I'll just work at the church. Going into the ministry requires preparation. It requires dedication. It requires courage. It requires early mornings and late nights. It requires sacrifice. It requires wholehearted devotion. It requires hard work. First Timothy chapter three, verse one says so much. Again, in the NASB, this passage describing the qualification of an elder says, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work that he 
desires to do. The word work means that which one does as a regular activity, as an occupation, or as a worthy task. Paul told Timothy later in 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And whether one is called to be a pastor or is called to be a missionary, I believe that this is the same calling with the same qualifications and with the same mission and many times have the same responsibilities with the same dependence on the Lord for the growth. What is the calling of a missionary? I believe that a missionary must have desire. They must be biblically qualified in their character and they must have the ability to teach the gospel, to evangelize the lost, teaching the Bible, training disciples and others to do likewise. And with this understanding, a pastor elder and a missionary in many regards is the same thing. One just does it at home and one does it abroad. One does it in the confines of a local church and one is sent out to help plan a church or encourage an existing church. And if you're following what I'm saying, I'm saying that a missionary should be elder qualified. Now here... At Placerita Bible Church, we believe that the Bible teaches that as pastors and elders, that we are to be men and not women. We believe that God created men and women equal in their value and in their dignity, but they have different roles and responsibilities, both at church and at home. And I believe that the primary missionary should be a man. I'm saying this because of what we're learning here today that being biblically qualified as an elder is an important part of what the New Testament places on the missionaries that are sent out. In fact, we don't see one single missionary in the Bible who was a woman. Again, it sounds like I'm beating up on women. I'm not trying to beat up on women. I'm raising the understanding in our minds that a missionary should be an elder qualified person if they're preaching and teaching gospel truths to a mixed audience of men and women or exercising any spiritual leadership over a woman. There are no women being sent out from local churches to do the pastoral work uh, as a missionary in the New Testament. Now, please don't misunderstand me. We have been and are supporting female missionaries from our church. We've supported for years Harriet Ishii, a beloved older lady who's been serving with the Slavic Gospel Association in the Chicago area for decades. And we call her a missionary here in the States. Many of you know we support Kim Guess, who's here on furlough now. She's a beautiful young lady from our church serving as a missionary in Romania together with a church and an orphanage. Another missionary that we support is Dorcas Kim, who came here uh, to this church while she was in her undergrad and did her MABC. She's now serving alongside of an established mission connected with a TMAI center there in the Philippines. All of our missionaries who are married, uh, we call their wives missionaries as well. So we would call Danielle or Jordan or uh, Ashley Wick or, or any of the other missionary wives. We would call them uh, missionaries even though they're their wife. I'm just simply saying that we are not raising up women to teach them to be pastors or elders or teach them to exercise spiritual authority over a man, as 1 Timothy 2.12 says. I guess what I'm trying to say is this. If you're a young man 
and a young woman, or a young woman, you can't be both, sorry, if you're a young man, <laughs> or if you're a young woman, and you're here today, and you're hearing what I'm saying, you're trying to discern, hey, what is Adam saying? This is what I'm saying. If you're a young man, and you want to be a missionary, you should be aspiring to be an elder-qualified, sent-out, godly man. That means you should have desire, you should have character, you should have ability to teach, and that should be your pursuit, is to be an elder-qualified young man that could serve in pastoral elder ministry here, or be sent out to serve somewhere else. I would say, if, if you're a young woman and you're like, well, I want to be a missionary too, but now you're saying I'm not an elder, so I can't be a missionary, I would say to you, you need to also pursue godly training, which would enable you to come alongside of an existing mission work as a helper, as an encourager, and as a teacher of women and children. So with all of this in mind, the calling to missions is both objective and subjective. The objective part is that you must be a godly young man or a godly young woman with character and a clear objective of what it is that the Bible's calling you to do as a missionary. The subjective part is that you have to want to go. And I do not believe that the Holy Spirit speaks verbally today in the same way that he did here in Acts chapter 13 verse 2. I'm not saying God doesn't speak, I'm just saying he might not speak that specifically and verbally to you today, but he does speak through his word and give the principles that we see of what it would mean to serve the Lord both at home and abroad. And I believe that the Holy Spirit does lead us providentially through the desires that he has given to you. If you have a desire and you have godly character, and you have giftedness to teach the Bible, then you should consider pursuing missions. That's something that you should be considering right now if you're a young man or you're a young woman, just like you're considering, should I be a teacher? Should I be a lawyer? Should I be a fireman? Should I start my own business? You should be thinking, well, maybe God's calling me to serve in the ministry. Maybe that's to be a pastor. Maybe it's to be a missionary. Maybe it's to join a mission effort to come alongside what's going on. We've got to move on. I'm never going to finish our message. I'm just bogged down in missiology right now. But let's move on to number three. We'll add a couple more thoughts in as we go. C says the laying on of hands. The laying on of hands. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And so if a church is functioning biblically, they will be able to help discern the call to missions Again, that's the end of verse 2, that, that they're going to lay hands on them, verse 3, and then send them off. And so if the church is functioning as it should, they'll be able to help you discern this. And after more fasting and praying, referring to the leadership of the church of Antioch, yet the congregation was also in full support, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And this is a reminder that a missionary needs the support of a local church. The local church has been given the authority and the responsibility to raise up and to send out missionaries. And this job does not primarily belong to the mission agencies, but it belongs primarily to the local church. And every missionary needs a sending church. Every missionary should be hopefully a member of a church, baptized in a church, taking communion in a church, submitting to the leadership of the church, serving in the church. Why would we ever send anybody to the field who's not doing all of those things? So it starts with a local church identifying, encouraging, and supporting a missionary, and then an agency gets involved. And every mission agency that we've ever worked with will not send out that person as a missionary if they don't have 
ascending church. And since I've been the pastor here at Placerita Bible Church, we've sent out two missionaries, Ben Candy to Brazil, and then Michael and Jordan to Fiji. Michael and Jordan have been sent out by a mission agency called Ambassadors for Christ, which primarily serves as a clearinghouse where people can give to that agency, and that agency takes care of Michael and uh, Jordan's financial needs. Ben Candy, who's in Brazil, now married to Tachi, is supported by a different agency called ABWE International, which stands for the Association of Baptists for World Evangelism. ABWE's goal is to do the long and hard work of missions. ABWE says, we believe that the Great Commission means not only sharing the gospel, but discipling new believers in the local church and helping biblical, healthy churches multiply and reach their own nations. And I love that. I love the fact that a local church can work together, whether we're working with TMAI, the Master's Academy International from Grace Community, or we're working with ABWE, or we're working with some other mission agency, our desire is to work together. I'm just simply reminding us, it starts with the local church, just like you have here in Antioch, where the local church leaders get together, the Holy Spirit makes it known, these are the two guys I want sent off, and now they're sending them off. Now just think that, again, as we read this, I'm imploring you, I'm begging you, to again ask about sending your kids to the mission field. Remember the prayer of Hudson Taylor's parents when he was a baby? They're like, Lord, raise him up and use him in China. Too many times we're overly interested in our children and young people are too focused on just simply getting a good education and getting a good job and getting a good salary. As if that's the highest need for us today, don't forget about the gospel. You could get a good education and a great job and have a great house and die and go to hell. That's not the real goal of the Christian life, and it's certainly not the goal of Christian parents. The goal of Christian parents is to raise your kids under the teaching and the admonition of the Lord and to send them out like arrows to wherever God would take them. And it might be somewhere here in the States, and it might be abroad, but the reason that we don't have more kids interested in missions, I believe, is because we don't have more parents interested in missions. All right, let me, let me move on. <laughs> All right, so I, I wish that we would just see and think and hear what it is that we're asking us to do, which would be like, you know what, maybe I need to think about this. Maybe I need to move this to front center. Maybe I need to send my kids to Utah this summer. Maybe I need to send my kids to Uganda or Fiji or other places to Italy that we want to go. So many of our short-term trips have been kind of still on hold because of COVID. Some of the challenges with traveling, we typically take one, two. We've taken as many as three trips in a year, and it's just killing me that we're not able to quite do that. But get ready because we're cranking it up next year. All right, 2023, we'll be sending out, Lord willing, several teams to go. And this may be something that if you want to learn a little bit more about missions, the first step would be go on a mission trip. Just get a little taste, go for a week or two and get a taste of what it feels like to be in another country and another culture somewhere else where, you're, where all you got is Jesus to help you work through the opportunities you'll have to share the gospel there. I really hope that you'll think and pray about that. Now, we've looked at the commission of these missionaries, verses one through three. Let's move on. That's about half the sermon, by the way, all right? Uh, let's move on to number two, the mission of the missionaries, verses four and five. The next blank there says, to be sent, to be sent by the Holy Spirit. Look at verse four. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit. This verse is just reiterating what, 
what we've already been talking about, which was ultimately it's the Holy Spirit who sends them out. Yes, Barnabas and Paul were part of a sending church, the church of Antioch. Yes, they have the verification and the approval of man by the laying on of hands, which shows both the authority and the partnership of this venture. But let's make no mistake about it. This is a work of God. It is God who calls and God who sends. And you may remember back to Acts chapter five, the apostles were arrested and the Pharisees were attempting to put a stop to their work. And then it was Gamaliel, a member of the council and a teacher of the law held in high honor by all who stood up and said in Acts 5, 38 through 39, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. So I'm saying if your mission effort is of man, it's going to fail. But if it's of God, but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Just simply saying, when God raises up and calls someone to the ministry, to the mission field, when God is sending you, nothing can stop the work. When God is behind you, no one can get in your way. When God is ministering through you, the work will not fail. It will accomplish what he desires. And the mission of a missionary is to be sent out by God, not by the spirit of adventure, not by a love of travel, or simply humanitarian interest in different cultures. You must have a conviction to be sent out by God to do his work. You are not only sent by the Holy Spirit, but secondly, you are to go somewhere. You are to be sent By the Holy Spirit, secondly, you are to go somewhere. I'm talking about to another place. Here we read, the Holy Spirit sent them out to Seleucia. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God. So they first went to Seleucia, it's a city about 16 miles away near the mouth of the Orontes River. Seleucia served as the port of Antioch. And once Barnabas and Saul reached Seleucia, they then embarked upon a ship and set sail for Cyprus, which is about 60 miles off the coast. Cyprus is the third largest island in the Mediterranean Sea. Only Sicily and Sardinia are larger. And in the New Testament times, the two major cities were Salamis, which is where they went first, which was the larger port and commercial center. And then we're going to read here in this text, they go across the island to Paphos, located on the other side of the island, which was its capital. Now, again, you may ask, why did Paul and Barnabas begin their missionary journey in Cyprus? Well, that's where the Holy Spirit called them to. He called them to go. He gave them the desire. They may have had a little bit of freedom to pick which city and which strategy to employ as they go to Cyprus. You also might remember that in Acts chapter 4, verse 36, Cyprus was Barnabas's home. He was from Cyprus. And so being familiar with this area made it a natural place to begin. It was only about a two or three day journey from Antioch, and they were going to continue on from there. But this is definitely a great place to begin. And in addition to all of this, Cyprus had a large Jewish population, so there would have been a great deal of familiarity with the things of God. So they're to be sent out, they're to go somewhere, see in your outline says they're to do something. And what is it that they did there at the end of verse 5 when they get to Salamis? They proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. So what did Barnabas and Saul go to Salamis to do? Well, they went there, according to verse 5, to proclaim 
the word of God. They didn't go there to play. They didn't go there to collect seashells. They didn't go there to eat Mediterranean food. They went there to work, and their work was to proclaim the word of God. This was a call to preaching and teaching the scripture. In fact, the word proclaim means to make known in public. It means to announce. And throughout the New Testament, this word is used to speak of proclaiming the person of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And they would be proclaiming the light of Jesus Christ to the Jews and to the Gentiles. In Acts 4.2, it says they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. A little later here in the same chapter of Acts in verse 38, it says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. This is what Paul says about Christ in his defense before King Agrippa in Acts 26, 23, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So this is what Barnabas and Saul are doing. They're proclaiming the word of God. They're carrying out the true spirit of a missionary by proclaiming the gospel. And they start, as it says here in verse five, in the synagogues, which is like a Jewish church, if you will, in the synagogues. And they're gonna be also doing this in public places. This kind of keeps in step a little bit with Romans 1.16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And so they're starting off in the synagogues, but they're gonna to continue to go into larger Greek populated areas. Many missionaries today are spending their time on providing clean water. They are training farmers to grow better crops. They are attending to medical needs. They are providing education. They are building houses. They are helping indigenous people start their own businesses so that they can provide for themselves and for their families. And to all of that, I say, that's awesome. That's humanitarian aid that is needed and Christians ought to lead the way to do all those things. However, if you're doing all those things and you're not proclaiming the word of God, then you're not doing mission work. And when you get into the mission field, you hear all kinds of missions going on that have nothing to do with the gospel. Again, I'm all for providing the humanitarian aid. I'm just saying for you as a believer, make sure you understand that your primary work is to proclaim the word of God. There's a need for humanitarian aid, but you are the one who is to bring the gospel. And if that's all that's happening is the humanitarian aid, you're missing the point of what it means to be a missionary. True mission work is Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. That's what you're called to be. You're called to be a witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just a UN worker or working for some other agency that doesn't preach the gospel. We also read that John, at the very end of the verse, and this is the John Mark, whom we talked about last week, is here to assist them. Please note, he wasn't necessarily sent out by the Holy Spirit, but Saul and Barnabas also had the freedom to add to their team strategically those that they think would be helpful in the work that they were doing. So think of John Mark as maybe an apprentice 
someone who's learning and growing and contributing to the work. And so we've seen the commission of missionaries. We've seen the mission of missionaries. Let's now look at number three, the opposition to the missionaries. Verses six through eight. Verse six, we're gonna look at a false prophet. It's your next blank. A false prophet named Bar-Jesus. When they had gone through the whole island, so far as to Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. And so after proclaiming Christ and Salimus, they traveled west across the whole island to Paphos, which was the capital city of Cyprus. And they would have covered at least 100 miles on the ground, and most likely this would have taken several weeks. And besides being the seat of the Roman government, Paphos was, according to one commentator, a great center for the worship of Aphrodite, which is the ancient Greek goddess of sexual love and beauty, identified with Venus by the Romans. The greatest festival in Cyprus was in honor of Aphrodite, was called Aphrodisia, and it was held for three days each spring. It was attended by great crowds, not only from the parts of Cyprus, but also from surrounding countries. And so Saul and Barnabas came there to Paphos, which was a pagan city practicing pagan worship. And they were opposed by a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet by the name of Bar-Jesus. Believe it or not, this word magician could refer to a sorcerer or it could describe a counselor or an honorable gentleman. It's the same word that was used to describe the magi of Luke, or excuse me, Matthew 2 verse 1. But in this context of Acts 5, it is most definitely referring to a fraudulent wizard. The word magician is related to the former word that we saw in Acts 8 describing Simon the sorcerer. This man in Paphos is described as a Jewish false prophet. This means he had some type of Jewish background, but he was also a false prophet. And the word for false prophet means one who falsely claims to be a prophet of God who prophesies that which is false or bogus. And as we will see, this man did not work for God, but he worked for the devil. He did not speak the truth, but he spoke a lie. He was not faithful, but he was a phony and a fake. And Jesus said, beware of people like this in Matthew 7, 15 through 16. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. But you will recognize them by their fruits. This man's name was Bar-Jesus, which simply means son of Jesus or son of Joshua, which means son of salvation. A strange name indeed for a deceiving false prophet. Jesus and Joshua were just common Hebrew names that were given there in the culture. So no direct relation to the Lord Jesus Christ or Joshua of the Old Testament, but that was his name, Bar-Jesus. And so we have a false prophet named Bar-Jesus, and we also have, number two, a proconsul named Sergius Paulus, the Roman governor here. Verse 7, he was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. The Roman governor of Cyprus, again, was Sergius Paulus, whom is described here as an intelligent man. And as an intelligent Roman, the governor had some interest in new philosophies and religious beliefs possessed by the people that he sought to govern. And he had some interest in the Jewish faith, but he also had likely heard a little bit about this new way 
of Christ's followers. He may have even heard the claims that Jesus had been raised from the dead, and so he was eager to learn more about it. Sergius specifically calls for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear, the verse says, he sought to hear the word of God. Now that's amazing, right? Typically as Christians, we think, well, nobody wants to hear my message and we walk in apologizing and trying to explain and this guy is just like, hey, I want those two guys. I want you to come talk to me about the word. It's like, how cool is that? It's because they're walking faithfully and the Holy Spirit is at work. And so it is possible that whatever he was hearing, the proconsul from Bar-Jesus, seemed to be odd, or it seemed to be off, or it simply wasn't well taught or documented. It may be that there was some suspicion about Bar-Jesus. Maybe he had recognized that this man was an entertainer, or he was just in it for the money, or that his own beliefs weren't that sincere or convictional. Whatever the case may be, God was at work in the proconsul's heart, and now he's going to hear from the word of God and that's our job, right? To sow the seed. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we are reminded that some plant, some water, but only God can give the growth. Who knows where God may put you or what opportunities you may have to be a witness for Christ. You may stand before kings. You may be in the midst of influential people. Or it might just be in front of your neighbor. Who knows? Our job is to be faithful no matter where we are. And if people want to hear about current events, they can listen to a news anchor. And if people want to learn about the latest research in medicine, then they can listen to a doctor. And if people want to hear about the latest gossip, then they can turn on TMZ, though I don't recommend it. But if people want to hear the word of God, they can only hear that from you. That's your calling. Your calling is to bring the word of God as a missionary, as a witness for him, you're to talk about Christ. Verse 8, we read a little bit more about Bar-Jesus. He is a, your next blank, a pretender who is a master of the occult. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. While Barnabas and Saul were getting the proconsul's ear, Bar-Jesus was getting jealous and worried about his influence. Luke refers to Bar-Jesus as Elymas, for that is the meaning of his name. Elymas is the Greek translation of an Arabic word for magician. Remember, we're talking about a magician here. The word magician also refers to one who is an expert in astrology, the interpretation of dreams, and of various occult arts. Elymas was opposed to Saul and Barnabas. He set himself up against them. He is resistant to the true message of the gospel. He wanted nothing to do with it. They were, there, there were other pretenders like this who opposed Moses when Moses confronted Pharaoh. Remember that story out of Exodus chapter 7 when Pharaoh had his two magicians who were also men who were sorcerers who were trying to do the same secret arts of what Moses was doing when he threw his rod down and it turned into a snake. The apostle Paul refers to this in 2 Timothy 3.8 which says just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses so these men also opposed the truth men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. That's what we see false prophets basically oppose the truth. They opposed the gospel. They opposed the men of God. And so Elymas wanted to stay at the center of attention. (coughs) Excuse me. He wanted the praise of men. 
He liked the power, the prestige, and the place of influence, so Elymas did his best to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And when you and I are involved in evangelism, rest assured that you will face an enemy. You will face a foe. You will be dedicating yourself to the faithful witness of the Lord Jesus Christ, and people will adamantly oppose you. Elymas is opposing Saul and Barnabas. I remember going on a mission trip to Brazil when I was in college. It was 1996. I was there for five weeks. We were passing out tracts and Bibles in little villages that were tributaries to the Amazon in northern Brazil, and there were Catholic priests coming in behind us. We went from town to town to town. We would pass out Bibles and tracts We would show the Jesus film there uh, on the edge of a river, and then we would get up and just preach the gospel, just go in for broke. Just, Just one pastor, four college students, and every night a different student would preach the gospel, and then we would just call people to repent and put their faith in Christ. And this priest, a couple of them, followed our tracks, took up the Bibles and the tracks, the, the, the pamphlets we were passing out, and burned them and told their people that the only truth they could ever get was found in the Roman Catholic Church, and they weren't to read the New Testament or any other literature. And I just remember being appalled that somebody who would claim to be a Christian, Roman Catholic priest there in Brazil, would do such a thing. And you never know what kind of opposition that you're going to face. It might be subtle. It might be extreme. It might be in the moment. It might be later. But rest assured that the prince of the power of the air is not going down without a fight. This is nothing less than spiritual warfare. And we must be on guard. And we must fight the fight of faith. And we must use the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, to stand our ground and fight. And that's exactly what Barnabas and Saul did as we finish now verses 9 through 12. Let's look at the determination of the missionaries, evil is confronted and defeated. Evil is confronted and defeated, 9 through 11, but Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Well, first of all, it's interesting here just to see that Saul's, if you're wondering about Saul's advancement to becoming the lead apostle, this is it. Up until this point, Saul is mentioned only by his Hebrew name, Saul. But from now on, he will be referred to as Paul, which is his Greek name. And there's several reasons for this change. One, if Paul is going to really function as the apostle to the Gentiles, like Romans 11:13 says, there is no better time to change his name than now as he is from here on out focused more on a Gentile audience. Number two, Paul has been radically transformed by the gospel. And oftentimes there would be a name change that would accompany such a transformation. Abram became Abraham, Jacob became Israel, Simon became Peter, and Saul is now becoming Paul. Number three, there's a certain focus on the new covenant here as opposed to the old covenant. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come and be with you for a special work, but not in you. 
In the New Testament, after Pentecost, the Holy Spirit now dwells inside of the believer to empower them for service. And so there's no better example of that than in this story, how Paul now lives his life before the Lord in spiritual battle. And as Paul is, as the text says, filled with the Holy Spirit, he boldly confronts Bar-Jesus or Elymas and calls him out directly. Like Christ confronting the Pharisees and like Peter confronting Simon the sorcerer, Paul is now directly confronting this false prophet. And this incident brings to mind the parable of the wheat and the tares where the Lord talks about how the wheat planted in the field would reflect the true children of God. And then Satan comes along and he sows a counterfeit, which are the tares reflecting the children of the devil. And Elymas is a tear. He is claiming to be a Jew. He is a false prophet and he is a son of the devil. That's what Paul says to him as filled with the Holy Spirit. No different than Jesus saying to the Pharisees in John 8, you were of your father, the devil. Elymas was an enemy of God. He was an enemy of righteousness. He was an enemy of the truth. He was an enemy of the straight path of God. You could cross-reference Micah chapter 3, verse 9. that talks about, hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight. And so the prophet is trying to do that, this false prophet, and Micah says there'll be people doing that. And the prophet goes on to say that Israel will be destroyed because of their unrighteous deed, their deceptive teachings and making crooked the straight path of the Lord. The last verse of Hosea, Hosea 14, 9 says something similar. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right and the righteous walk in them, but the transgressors will stumble in them. So what's going to happen to Elymas? Verse 11 says, the hand of the Lord is upon you. And this means in this context that the Lord is going to judge you and to punish you for your evil deeds. And Paul and Elymas would, uh, Paul says here that Elymas would be blind for a time. And immediately the text says there was a mist and a darkness that fell upon him and that he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Kind of reminds us of the two angels that came to Lot in the town of Sodom and the Sodomites were approaching these two angels and something to do something evil to them. And it says that they were struck with blindness, evil will always be defeated. The truth will always prevail. It may not seem like it in the moment, but it is true that God always is at work to accomplish his purposes and his plan. And part of God's purpose and his plan in this situation was to show the power of God in Paul and Barnabas' ministry and to expose the work of the devil found in Elymas. That's exactly what happens. Our last verse here, verse 12, faith comes from observing and believing. If you feel frustrated and disappointed by Elymas and his work, we then see, though as it's juxtaposed with Paul and Barnabas's teaching, with Elymas's teaching, that leads us to verse 12, then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And so the proconsul, that's Sergius Paulus, put his faith in Christ. He saw what occurred. 
He saw that evil was defeated. He saw that the holy judgment of God was upon this false prophet who was a son of the devil. And in that moment, God opened up the proconsul's eyes. In that moment, he was able to see the difference between light and darkness, good and evil, the way of almighty God and the way of the magic of flawed man. It does say that the proconsul was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Just clarifying, this guy came to Christ not only because of the miracle that certainly got his attention as all miracles do, but it was because of the end of verse 12, it was at the teaching of the Lord. A miracle can grab your interest, but only the teaching of the Lord can save your soul. And in this situation, that's how this man was saved. Even though the miracle was a defining moment, Even though he was a Roman governor, it was the light of Christ that came shining through. It was the faithful proclamation and the teaching of the word of God that opened the proconsul's mind. It was the word that opened the proconsul's heart. It was the word that regenerated the proconsul's whole being and gave him new life. It's Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. John 17, 17, sanctify them in truth and your word is truth. So this whole passage today is significant in many ways. This incident marks the beginning of Paul's leadership in this journey. Up until this point, it was Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul. Saul's mentioned as number five in verse one. Barnabas and Saul. But after this point, it's Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas. In fact, the very next verse says, Paul and his companions. This was Paul's shining moment where he comes out with great clarity and great filling of the Spirit, precisely talking about the truth and confronting this false teacher. And from this point on, the ministry of Paul had a decidedly more Gentile slant. Remember, it was Jesus who said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. It's Saul, now Paul, to be a Gentile, to, the Gen, uh, to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And this whole incident is also filled with figurative nuances. A Gentile leader, this is the proconsul, accepted the message of the gospel, while a Jewish leader opposed it. The Jews' blindness pictured the judicial blinding of Israel, mentioned in Acts 28, 26 through 27, Luke, by recording the progression here, emphasizes this transitional nature of the book of Acts. On the one hand, Gentiles became the primary object of the gospel, and on the other hand, God temporarily turned from the Jews, and then he judged them. As William MacDonald says in his commentary, quote, the proconsul was obviously impressed by the miraculous stroke from God, But he was even more impressed by the teaching which had been given to him by Barnabas and Saul. He became a true believer in the Lord Jesus, the first trophy of grace on the first missionary journey. What a great story, isn't it? To think about the call of missions. Well, first of all, before God ever calls you to missions, he's got to call you to himself. If you're here today and you don't know the Jesus of the Bible, the resurrected Jesus, we want to invite you after our last song to come talk to a few people who will be standing right up here today. I also want to challenge you to think about whether or not God's called you to be a missionary. We don't have time to go through the take-home points there, but they're all written out by David Platt, who Josh Dojero and I just heard in a mission at, uh, at a conference at T4G. This was his last um, 
public address to that audience of T4G where he gave these four thoughts for us to think about maybe by practical application that you can read through, talk about with your family. But for now, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. I know we've gone a little bit long in our time, but it just, it's just hard to stop when we see the narrative of Acts just going and going and going, exciting things happening, encouraging truths that we see from the apostle Paul, from his associate Barnabas. We're thankful for the defeat of evil in this verse. And just this one little section, it's nice to hear of the advancement of the gospel. And we know sometimes that we could be opposed by a force that would take days or weeks or years or a lifetime to penetrate. We know that your timing is perfect in when you save and how you save. We know that we have much to think about, to call the missions as we have young men and women in this room. I know a lot of our college students are gone for the summer, but there's some here. There's men and women, young boys and girls who need to consider whether or not maybe the Holy Spirit would set them aside through a unique desire deep in their heart of hearts to give their life to the ministry of proclaiming the gospel both here and abroad. So I pray, God, that you would raise up more godly missionaries from this church, Lord. I pray that there would be so many raised up that we would have no possible way to support them apart from the generous giving of your people. Pray, God, that you would do that which would bring you the most glory in how we respond to what we've learned from our message together today. Be glorified in our hearts and our lives as we want to think about and consider a call to missions. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.